Matthew chapter 18 and beginning in verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see their face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. One of the things that really stood out to me in this passage was the focus on relationship. It deals with temptation to sin and other things, church discipline and things like that within the passage, but everything that it deals with, it deals with it within the context of relationship. 
And I, I find that interesting because as we looked at our passage last week that led right up to this part, we find that the, the apostles were having a conflict within their relationship with one another. And this conversation broke out amongst the disciples. Luke even refers to it as an argument about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's within this context of the disciples having an argument about who's the greatest that Jesus then unfolds Matthew 18 for us in His teaching. And everything that He explains all the way through Matthew 18 is we find within the context of relationship and relating with one another and So I guess when I boil Matthew 18 down to one single concept, I boil it down to this concept, it's unity. Because the disciples were at a moment in their relationship with one another that they were not in unity. And at the same time, Jesus walks through the whole unfolding of His truth in this chapter, pointing toward unity. Well, that's what we're going to consider here this morning. As we consider this idea of unity, we're going to notice through the passage that we're going to find six actions that help to foster unity. These are actions that Christ is calling His disciples into, inviting them into. They're actions that He's inviting us into at the same time this morning. The first action that I see that fosters unity is found in the first four verses that we need to strive for humility. The disciples are in an argument, one with another, about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and and Jesus bypasses them all. He brings a little child up into the middle of them and says, you better become like this child or you're not even going to be there. If you don't humble yourself like this child, so we ought to strive for humility. The kingdom of heaven is about humbling ourselves and serving one another. It's about in humility recognizing our sinful condition and receiving the forgiveness that we get from our Savior. And then humbly offering that to other people as well. In the kingdom of Christ, we have to strive for humility. We've got to be on our guard constantly against pride and against arrogance in our life. Try to keep from putting self first and being self-seeking and self-serving to being others-oriented and and others-serving and seeking the betterment of others. So we need to strive for humility. The second action that we see that fosters unity is that we need to act responsibly toward one another. Now, as we look within the passage, the way Jesus says it is he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Notice what he does. Jesus takes our relationship toward other people and he focuses on our responsibility that we have one toward another. He said, look, if you lead one of these little ones that believe in me into temptation, into sin, you're responsible. So he's calling his disciples to live a life that is not just live for their own purposes. He's calling his disciples to think about their actions and their behaviors and their words, to think about how those things affect the people around them. Are my actions going to lead somebody else into a tempting situation? Are my words going to be discouraging to somebody else that's trying to follow Christ? The arrogant person says, this is my life. I can do what I want. The humble person asks, what impact am I having on other people? And Jesus uses very unapologetic language here. He says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. I can't think, maybe fire. Uh, I can't think of a whole lot of things worse than that. But fire he's going to bring up in a few minutes. 
And so he's saying, look, you've got to get this in perspective. If you do something in your life that leads somebody else into something destructive in their life, you're in bad shape. Our impact on others should be one of the things that motivates us. How can I be an encouragement to somebody else? There is little that you can do in this life that has as great a value as being an encouragement or an influence in somebody else's life for good. The early church had a little bit of a problem as Christianity grew into areas where they were pagan areas and they were worshiping these false gods and, and they were practicing idolatry. In a lot of those pagan temples, they offered sacrifices. And as they offered these sacrifices, then the meat that was taken from those animals after the sacrifices was often sold out in the meat market. So you go to the grocery store or the meat market and you go to buy a piece of meat for dinner and you might be buying a piece of meat that was offered to an idol in a sacrifice. When these people became Christians, they had, some of them had a struggle with that. They said, well, now what do we do? I used to go to the temple, offer the sacrifices, buy the meat or eat the meat, For dinner, didn't think anything of it. But now, I don't worship that God anymore. I've repented of that. But the meat is taken and sold in the store. Can I eat it or don't I eat it? And some of the people were fine. They said, you know what? I can eat it. I'm not going to the temple to worship. I didn't offer the sacrifice. I just bought a piece of meat in a grocery store. How can that be wrong? Other people said, oh, I just can't do it. That's not right. That meat was offered as a sacrifice to this God. I just can't do it. And so there was becoming a conflict in the church because the people that felt like they could eat the meat were kind of looking down on the people that felt like they couldn't. And the people that couldn't eat the meat, they were saying, no, that's wrong. They were judging the people that were eating the meat. And so there was a contention in the church. And the Apostle Paul, in looking into the issue, he said it doesn't really matter. It's not... Wrong. It's just a piece of meat in the marketplace. That God that it was offered to is nothing. He's a false God. You didn't go worship. You didn't offer the sacrifice. It's nothing. His conclusion of the matter is, if you have a problem with it, don't eat it. If you don't have a problem with it, go ahead and eat it. You're both acting out of faith with a clear conscience before God. It's a gray area. You're not any better if you don't do or you don't. You're not any worse off if you do or you don't unless you cross and go against your conscience, go against your faith. So if your conscience is bothering you and you go against your conscience, then you're not acting in faith toward God and anything outside of faith is sin. So then you're sinning. But other than that... Eat, don't eat, doesn't really matter. That's the overall conclusion. But along the way, he raises another principle, and that's what I'd like to look at this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul tells them, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But then in verse 9 he says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. you got more than just you to think of. If you feel free in your conscience to eat that meat, but you know that it's going to cause a stumbling block for your friend that does not feel like they can eat the meat, then what should you do? In verse 13 he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother to stumble. The Apostle Paul says, look, there's something more important than a diet here. There's something more important about whether you eat that piece of meat, and it's just the ones offered to idol, so it's not meat as a whole. There's something more important than whether or not you have steak or a salad for dinner. You know what's more important? Your brother, your sister in Christ. That's what's more important. 
Why don't you serve them? Why don't you look at this as an opportunity to be a blessing to them by not putting a stumbling block, not putting a temptation in their way? I dealt with it also in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14, as he writes to that church, he says, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of the brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So again, he uses severe language here. But he says, if you're going to tear down your brother or sister in Christ by what you eat, then don't eat it. Why would you destroy the one for whom Christ died over a piece of meat? And then in verses 20 and 21, he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. God's at work in that person's heart, brought them to salvation, bringing them to the truth. He's growing that person. He's building them up. He says you're destroying the work of God if you put that kind of temptation in front of them. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. You see, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Thirdly, we need to deal decisively with sin. We've already started to see in that last part of the passage there that sin is very destructive, that sin is very severe in God's picture. I'm afraid that sometimes it's not as severe in our own perception of what sin is. And I think it's because we're born sinful, we're familiar with it, we live in a world of sin, and the more that we're exposed to it, the more comfortable we are with it. And so it often doesn't strike us as being all that big of a deal. But sin is always a big deal for God. The fact that God forgives us does not mean that He looks upon sin lightly. It means that He esteems the sacrifice of His Son greatly. When you look at the price that was paid for our forgiveness of sin, it was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we see the severity of God's judgment upon sin. Well, Jesus has already pointed that out. That look, if you lead, if your actions bring somebody else to into a tempting environment that leads them to sin, it's better off for you to be drowned. And he's not just waxing poetic here. He's trying to communicate to us the severity of sin in this world. You know, I don't know that we always see it that way. I don't know that I do. I want to see it God's way. I'm trying to see it God's way, but I don't often see that some of the sins that I stumble into or I trip up on, I fall into, I willingly walk into. I don't often see them as, boy, it would be better if I drowned than to have just done that. But in God's big picture of everything, it's actually true. It's better off for us to drown than to lead somebody else into sin. That kind of brings sin into a whole new light, doesn't it? And what Jesus does next is He calls the disciples to deal with their sin drastically. He says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter into heaven maimed with only one hand or one foot, one eye, than to enter into hell with both. Now, obviously, Jesus is not calling literally for self-mutilation, but what is He saying? He's saying, cut it off. Get rid of it. Deal decisively with sin. Don't, Don't play with it. Don't flirt with it. Get rid of it. Remember that movie, Courageous? And the guy has a problem with pornography and he ends up out in the driveway with a baseball bat and a computer. (laughs) Remember that? That's dealing decisively with sin. In one of our Bible studies that we went through with uh, John Piper recently, he talked about a lady that he confronted because 
He was told by her husband that she was involved in an affair. And he called this lady into his office and he confronted her about her affair. And she said, yes, it's true. And he says, well, you need to cut it off right now. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, oh, well, then I'm afraid you're going to go to hell. And somebody had been a part of their church for a long time. She said, wait, what? Wait a minute. Don't you believe in eternal security that once you're saved, you're always saved? But he went on and explained biblical eternal security to her. He says, yes, I do believe once you're saved, you're always saved. But if you can live a life of adultery, I don't believe you're saved. Because that is outside of the realm of faith. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2, notice what it says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. So he's remembering when he brought the gospel to these Corinthians. He says, you have the gospel which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to do that in a couple verses later. But he says, you received it. When he preached it, they welcomed it. They claimed to believe it. They were baptized and everything. It says, and by which you are being saved. Notice in verse 2, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is he saying? What is the if there for? I mean, if we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and we turn in or put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are saved, correct? And we have eternal life, right? Absolutely. But if that is true, you will also continue in that. You will also persevere. You will remain faithful. If faith is going to do anything, it ought to remain faithful. And so he says, if you are continuing. The point that he's making is that if you're not continuing, you didn't genuinely put your faith in Christ. The faith that is there today and gone tomorrow is not faith. And that's what Jesus is saying. We need to be decisive with our sin. If we're not decisive with our sin, you know what we are? We're lost. If your concept of assurance, biblical assurance, that once you're saved, you're always saved, allows you to be comfortable within your sinful life, it is not biblical assurance. Even one of the passages that we go to the most, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, is found in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. You know what the rest of the book is about? It's saying if you say that you love God, but you're not obeying His commandments, you're a liar. If you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. He's saying what you say doesn't mean nearly as much as what you do. Our lives have to back it up. And that's why when we look at this thing, Jesus has two sets of people here. He's saying you've got the people that cut it off and you've got the people that go to hell. Now back to our story with John Piper's lady in his office. And he tells her, I'm sorry, but you're going to go to hell. And she says, well, how can you say that? I was saved this many years ago. And he showed her through the Bible that that's not an act of faith. If, you're, if you can live comfortably, if you can live in your adultery in an ongoing time, you, you, you don't have genuine faith. And you know what happened? She walked out of there and she cut off that affair. And she went back to her husband. Now that is proof that she was a genuine Christian. We've got to cut that off. In the book of Hebrews, he's, he's talking to this group of people that is looking at going back to the temple ways, going back to the old system of worship, and they've come to trust in Christ. And he's confident that they have trusted in Christ, but the fact that they're leaning toward or considering making this change says, all, all bets are off if you do that. Well, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So again, you see the same thing. He says, We have Christ if we hold fast. If we don't hold fast, we don't have Christ. 
Hebrews then in 3.12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, what he's been doing in between these verses is he's been looking back to Old Testament Israel that came out of Egypt with Moses. And he says, look at Old Testament Israel. They came out of Egypt with Moses. They experienced the deliverance through Moses that God had for them. And he says, and notice what happened. They rebelled and they showed themselves to be unbelievers. And then he's talking to this church that also has come to believe and followed Christ. And he's saying, you better be careful that there's not an unbelieving heart in you. In other words, test your faith to see if it was genuine. If it was genuine, you can't abandon Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14, so just two verses later, says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, which is just a few verses later, says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Again, he's comparing back to Old Testament Israel. They came, experienced the deliverance. They're headed for the promised land and they hardened their heart and rebelled against God. And he says, look, that is an example of unbelief. And then he's warning them, be careful because faith will remain faithful. If you don't remain faithful, you don't have faith. It's like, it's like Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong, I don't go around reading a lot of Shakespeare. The only reason I know about this quote is because of a movie that I saw it in. Part of the 116th sonnet I found to be very interesting. And this is what it says. It says, Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. You see what Shakespeare's saying there? He's saying a love that doesn't last was never love. Well, that's what God's saying. God's saying a, a faith that doesn't last is not faith. And that's why Jesus draws such a narrow line right there. There are those who cut off their sin. I'm not saying you never struggle with it again, but you cut it off when you do struggle. You act decisively toward your sin. Those are the people of faith. And then you have the people that live with their sin, and those are people who are lost. I don't care if they're sitting in church or not. We must act decisively with our sin. This fosters a unity. Also, we see that we must value the individual. In verses 10 through 14, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the Father's love. The Father's love, he says, is like a, a good shepherd. You lose one of them. One of them wanders off, and what do you do? You leave the, the other 99 behind to go find the one. He values the individual. And you know what? That hugely fosters unity within the church is we make decisions and we, and we look at individuals as important and we realize that every single person is important. How every person is feeling, how every person is growing in their faith, how each person from the youngest of us to the oldest of us is taken care of, that should be a priority for us. The individual is important to God. Not only do we need to value the individual, we need to care enough to confront because then he goes into this whole process that he lays out that we, we label as church discipline. He says, if somebody sins against you, go to them, just you, and fix it. If you go to them and it doesn't fix it, then bring a couple people to try to help fix it and try to establish the truth of things and falsehood of things and, and to, to get to the bottom of this, to fix this problem. And then if that doesn't work, then finally bring it to the whole church and have the authority of the church behind this decision to try to bring this person around to repent of their sin. 
But even the casting out is for the purpose of bringing them in. It's because of their value as an individual that you go through this whole process. That's why I said all these parts are connected. The horror of sin and then the value of the individual and then that individual falls into sin and what do you do? You rescue them. And there's this whole process to go through to try to rescue that person, to bring them back in. It's often where we fall down. It's often where we miss the mark. And sadly enough to say, I think the reason that we often miss the mark in this realm is because we do not want personal discomfort. So we're more likely to watch a brother or sister go off into sin than to step out of our comfort zone and to come alongside them and confront them. It's uncomfortable to say, I want to talk to you about something in your life that is harmful. I want to talk to you about something in your life that you need to quit. To show them verses like, you got to cut it off or you're going to go with it into hell. we got to care enough. I think it's just that simple. With my kids, I didn't hesitate to confront when I feel like there's something damaging in their life. I was quick to jump in. Sometimes maybe quicker than I needed to be. But it's quick to jump in with my kids. You want to know why with my kids? Because I care. I care about every little influence that comes into their life, which way it's going to lead them or steer them. I need to care about you. You need to care about me. You need to care about the ones next to you. We need to care enough to step in alongside and say you're, you're headed down some hard path here and it needs to turn around. And when they tell you to mind your business, they are your business. The Bible tells you they're your business. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6.1, it also reemphasizes brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. So we need to do it with the right attitude, the right compassion, but we do need to care enough to confront. We are our brother's keeper. You know who said, who asked if they were their brother's keeper? Yeah, you do. Cain. He was the one trying to shirk the responsibility. We will not be like those who shirk the responsibility for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to care enough to confront. And then lastly, we see we need to pursue forgiveness. Peter asked the question, how many times? What if they sin against me seven times and then ask forgiveness every time? Seems like words are cheap at this point. Do I continue to forgive? And Jesus says, you better believe it. Seventy-seven times. And he's not really putting a number on it. He's just saying, you just keep on forgiving. And you know what? That's time. Sometimes when somebody offends us or when somebody, it gets to a point where you don't want to forgive anymore. You don't want to. You want to hold on to that bitterness. You want to hold on to that resentment. I always look at it this way. You keep the door open. Now, not everybody's always a member of your church where you can bring them before the church and have, have the power of the church try to try to fix this for you. It's not always left to you in the end. You have to at some point get them to participate somehow. And you can't always do that. It's heartbreaking, but it's the way it is. When it comes to that point in my life, and I have a relationship that's at a point like that in my life, uh, I have one philosophy, and that's keep the door open, seek for peace all the time. If, I, if, there, if there comes across something that I can do to try to mend that, something that might lead to a, even just as one tiny little step towards restoration, I want to take that tiny little step. So I, I want to do whatever I can to foster that relationship coming back together to keep that door open. And that's exactly what, what does Jesus do with Peter? He tells him a story. And he says, you know what, there was a guy that comes before the king and he owes this horrendous amount that he could never pay back in his lifetime. And he just gets forgiven. His master just forgives him the debt. Not even tells him, okay, you can pay a little bit at a time. Just forgives it. And what does he do? He goes out and grabs a guy that owes him something and says, you know what, you cough it up. And the guy says, be patient with me. Same thing he said to his master. He says, no, into the courts we go. Into the jail you go. And then the master hears about that and comes back and says, I forgave you. Let's put it more in our day. I forgave you a billion dollars and you couldn't forgive that person a thousand? What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with us? When we recognize what Jesus did for us, what God did for us, 
when He forgives us. He's not holding that over our head. Your old sins, He's not saying, well, I'm going to let you pay that off, you know, penance a little at a time. Purgatory, take a few pounds of flesh for a couple hundred years there and then you'll be good. Nope, God says you're forgiven. You're forgiven. That's completely gone. So now then, how eager should we be for people that offended us? To offer forgiveness. You know what? I've been forgiven of so much, I just hope everybody can experience the same thing. And when people do things that hurt, we need to keep this in mind. And we need to pursue forgiveness. Not not our gaining it from them, it's talking about in this case, but our giving it to them. We need to be so willing to forgive. Keep those doors so open on those relationships. Don't let those close. As much as it is in you, stick your foot in that door and keep that open. So as we look at the unity through Matthew chapter 18, we see that there are six different actions that help foster that unity in our lives. The first action is we need to, we need to strive for humility. In arrogance, none of this happens. We need to strive for humility. We need to act responsibly toward one another. We need to deal decisively with sin. Sin will destroy any relationship. We need to value individuals. We need to care enough to confront Life is messy. People are messy. And we need to be willing to get in the mess with one another. And we need to pursue forgiveness in our lives.